Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. It's been another turbulent few days in the presidency of Donald Trump, and Suzanne Lynch will join us shortly from Washington to talk about the latest developments there. But first this week, it's to Brussels, where Theresa May will plead on Wednesday for further time for the UK to organise this already slow and painful departure from the EU. Patrick Smith, our Europe editor, joins me now from Brussels. Uh, Paddy, you're in Brussels as we speak, but you were in Luxembourg this morning for a meeting of EU foreign ministers. Did you get any sense there of a consensus emerging about what position the EU27 will adopt at this week's summit? I think there were two things, really, which were which are clearest. One is that the, there is a very strong consensus that she should get some, some form of, uh, of extension and that they will do everything they can to make sure that she does. But she's also going to get a grilling from the leaders when, when they meet her because they're, they're still insisting that she must provide a, a justification for the extra time. In other words, she's got to tell them what her plan is. Um, people have talked about a clear plan or a roadmap. Uh, to to get her from this mess uh, to uh, to some kind of a deal in Britain that will involve passing the withdrawal agreement and amending the political declaration. Now, as things stand, of course, the EU is due to depart the EU on Friday, having already secured a two-week extension from the original departure date, which was March 29th. Um, and now she's asking for a further extension to June 30th. What options are open to the EU in, in terms of length of time or whatever? Well, there are a number of, of options. Probably the, the simplest way to, to look at it is to say that the that no deal is virtually uh, ruled out. There's such political uh, opposition to it within the European Union we, that they, they will do anything they can to make sure that she doesn't crash out um, on, on Friday. And then, then there's two real options in terms of uh, the length of, of an, another extension. Firstly, there's the one that she has sought herself in her letter, uh, which is an extension to June the 30th with a proviso that if uh, they go on that long, um, they will continue, they will fight the European elections, uh, which are on the 23rd of May. If, however, she gets a deal in Britain uh, before the 23rd of May, um, she will cancel the European elections and uh, the 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 British will, will, will then simply leave uh, the European Union at that stage. The other option is uh, that she gets a, um, a long extension, which could be anything up to probably a year, uh, and in, in a couple of different forms. Donald Tusk is proposing that they be offered a, what, what's been known as a flex extension, uh, which is an extension up to a year, but, but which uh, would be... Uh, cancelled, if you like, when and if in the interim the British uh, managed to get their act together and, and uh, agree a deal. Uh, they would then leave at that particular point. And that also would allow them possibly to exit before they would be required to hold European elections? It would. It, it, it would indeed. And they would, that would be their preferred option because they really don't want to hold uh, European elections. It's likely, they're likely to see the Conservative Party absolutely massacred and, and Labour will probably do very badly too, with the emergence of a large group of, of Brexit-style, Brexiteer-style politicians uh, on the European stage. And what consequences for British politics are not, are not clear at all. 
And, and um, so, as you say, Paddy Tusk has put forward this flextension idea. The June thirtieth idea is there. That's, that's her her request. Do we know yet what way the member states are leaning on on, on the question of these two particular dates? No, there were divided views at the um, uh, ministerial meeting this morning, and um, they're all basically saying this is a political decision. It'll be taken at the highest level, so it'll be thrashed out in the course of the discussions uh, tomorrow evening. Now, some clarity may emerge uh, following the meetings that, that, that Mrs May has had in Paris and in Berlin today, where she's been leaning on, on the, the, the two respective leaders, uh, Macron and Merkel, to um, uh, support her position. But uh, we haven't really heard yet whether or not they've changed their positions. In either case, be it a shorter or longer extension, you mentioned there at the outset that they will be looking for evidence of a clear plan. What does she need to have in that plan? What would the elements of that plan um, involve? Well, I was asking uh, both Barnier and and uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs Coveney uh, today in, in uh, Brussels, does that mean that she has to indicate clearly uh, that she's willing to, to go back on, on some of her red lines? And they were both a little um, unwilling to go down that particular road. They both said it wasn't up to them to tell the British what they should uh, um, put forward as a proposal. But the truth is that simply going to uh, Brussels uh, tomorrow and saying, well, I'm in talks with Labour, so uh, isn't, that, isn't that a new path? Isn't that a new road? Uh, will that, that won't do, basically, as a plan uh, to provide justification for, for an extension. So she's going to have to come up with something slightly more, and, and the I, and Europe was hinting very strongly what they would like her to do is to hint that she will uh, support the idea of a customs union. But if she fails to do that, Paddy, does that still leave the possibility of a no-deal alive? I mean, if she turns up essentially with nothing but what you just said, I'm in talks with the Labour Party, I'm hoping something will emerge from that. Um, is it possible then that that will give some sort of sustenance to the voices who have been making the argument over recent weeks that, look, this continuing uncertainty is the worst possible thing for the EU and maybe a no-deal and a clean break is what everybody needs? I think it's extremely unlikely that she will turn up with nothing. And I think as, as long as she gives them something, some evidence that she's embarked on a new course. And even, you know, to, to some extent, the, fact, the very fact of, of these, these talks and the, the very slight evidence we have that she appears to be preparing to move on, on uh, customs union, that that will probably be used as justification. But I think, uh, for giving her the extension, but I think that, that some uh, leaders, and not, notably uh, Macron, uh, is likely to be quite tough on this. Whether it would be to the point of denying her an extension, I think it's unlikely. I think it's, and I think she probably knows that as well. Um, you, you mentioned there her meetings with Macron today and Angela Merkel. There was some renewed speculation this morning that Angela Merkel was prepared to consider um, agreeing to a five-year limit on the border backstop, which of course has been the major, one of the major sticking points in this whole uh, process. It's it's unconfirmed. Um, nothing has been well, confirmed on the German side, and Michel Barnier said... Unconfirmed. It's unconfirmed. It's, it's denied by, by Berlin and by senior EU politicians who say it's nonsense. This emerged from Andrea Ledsom, the leader of the House, and who's a strong Brexiteer in, in the uh, um, British cabinet. Um, 
I really don't think that there's any substance to it at all. And uh, I was going to ask you in general, there's this kind of recurring speculation that Germany might be softer on the backstop than, than others. Is there any substance at all to that or do you think is this some wishful thinking on the part of some sections of the British media? No, I think it's very much wishful thinking. Um, Angela Merkel has been absolutely uh, unequivocal about the, the backstop uh, and, and I think she understands it. I think if she was going to be soft on anything, it might be on the idea of, of a short or long extension and probably favouring a, a long extension for the British. But in terms of the backstop and the um, immutability of the withdrawal agreement and the Irish protocol, she is absolutely as firm as any of them. And those talks, Paddy, you mentioned there between the Conservative Party and the Labour Party in Britain, what do EU leaders make of those talks? Do they place any faith in them, any weight on them? Do they think it's a serious attempt in the UK to break the logjam? Well, the word serious has been repeatedly used today by ministers and by Barnier and people like that. They they say that this is these are serious discussions. And so they're, they're pinning a lot of hope on, on it. Now, it has to be said that even if... Uh, uh, Mrs. May ag- agrees to a customs union and um, allows negotiators to put it into uh, the, the political declaration. It's quite possible that she will lose as many votes uh, in the Commons as she would gain by by uh, doing this deal with Labour. Um, there is no guarantee at all that she can she can secure a majority uh, down this particular road. So there's a nervousness here about about how solid. Um, that uh, prospect might be. But uh, nevertheless, it's the only hope they have. And, and so we're clutching at straws. And so what's the timetable, Paddy, for, for Wednesday, for the European Council meeting? When does it begin and, and when do we expect to get some kind of um, outcome or decision? Uh, well, <laughs> the, the beginning is the easy bit. Uh, it starts at six with a session with the European Parliament president, uh, Tajani, uh, the usual uh, get together of the council always involves the president of the parliament getting his word in first. He leaves, then uh, Mrs. May comes into the room and she uh, will address them initially and then she'll answer questions. Now, the question and answer session at the last summit uh, lasted an hour and a half, uh, at which stage uh, she leaves and the 27 uh, discuss uh, what they what they propose to do. Uh, they will do so over what's called a working dinner. Uh, the reality is that this is likely to take a very long time and it's quite possible we won't get uh, a result on um, uh, until until the early hours of the morning. Um, one of the problems at the last summit was that the leaders themselves started drafting declarations themselves rather than leaving it to, to diplomats and officials. And... Um, Officials would, would cast their eyes to heaven at the idea that, that leaders get involved in this, and it certainly extends the process. So we could be in for a late night on Wednesday, Paddy? Yes, I think it's it's more likely than, than not. Um, the, the, the differences, there are, there are a number of problems that they face. One, one is the duration of, of an extension. One is, is how much uh, Mrs. Uh, May's Justification is really a justification that they that they uh, that they think um, is satisfactory, and the other is that there there is constant um, uh, worries, and it was expressed at the ministerial meeting this morning about how do you ensure that the British behave well if they stay on in the union. Now, there's a lot of important decisions uh, to be taken by the European Union in the course of the next few months, 
from appointing a new commission to agreeing a, a budget um, and a lot of other senior senior appointments. And people are very worried that uh, if um, the British were, were so minded, they could seriously disrupt uh, that uh, process. So how, how you get them, not only Mrs May to guarantee that she won't disrupt things, but you, you get a commitment that her successor, whoever that might be, uh, does not uh, plan to disrupt things while they remain uh, members for a few months more. Yes, because on that question, I know some people found the idea that Britain might be disruptive a little bit fanciful and unfair, and then Jacob Rees-Mogg came out and suggested they should do exactly that. Yes, and, and his comments were read in Brussels, as I'm sure they were intended uh, to be read in Brussels, as avidly as they were they were read by uh, in, in London. Uh, people don't take his you know, view that they should consciously disrupt um, that seriously. But it is nevertheless the case that it, if you had a, a new um, Tory leader, a, a Dominic Raab or, or uh, God forbid, a, a Boris Johnson, um, anything would be possible. OK. Well, Paddy, we'll, we can hope for some more clarity come Wednesday night, Thursday morning. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you. You're listening to The Irish Times. That was Patrick Smith, our Europe editor. It's to the United States now where we're going to catch up on the latest political developments with our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, I said there at the top of the podcast that it's been another turbulent few days in the presidency of Donald Trump. We've had two high-profile departures from the White House in the space of 24 hours, and we might start with those. The departure on Sunday of the Homeland Security Secretary, Christian Nielsen, was abrupt and unexpected. What happened there? Yes, uh, Kirsten Nielsen has been uh, leading the Department of Homeland Security uh, since around the summer, August of uh, 2017. Um, Now, there had been reports and speculation that her relationship with Donald Trump, like many people in the administration, was not 100% smooth. Um, But there was no sense that her departure was imminent. Um, But on Sunday, she went to the White House for a meeting, a scheduled meeting with Donald Trump at 5 p.m., in the Oval Office. Um, She had reportedly arrived with a list of different issues that she wanted to talk through, and there was some tension. But uh, during the meeting, Donald Trump essentially uh, told her that he wanted her resignation. She then tendered her resignation, and Donald Trump, uh, as he tends to do, announced this uh, on Twitter. So um, I think this really did take uh, Washington by surprise, particularly it happening on a Sunday evening. Uh, But also, I think it's significant because uh, the Department of Homeland Security is the main agency that was set up after 9-11 that deals with uh, security, immigration issues, etc. And I think this is a signal now uh, of where Donald Trump's priorities are at the moment. Uh, Immigration, the border wall, um, what he's calling the crisis at the border, has really returned centre stage uh, to Donald Trump's politics over the last few weeks. And I think his move to remove Nielsen is a signal that he's wanting to go in a different direction. And Christian Nielsen became notorious, I'm not sure if that's too strong a word, but Mm. as the public face of the policy of separating children from their their parents Mm. among migrant families at the Mexican border. So she became associated, if you like, with a very hardline policy, whether it was her policy Mm. or not. And if that policy now, it seems, wasn't tough enough for Trump. Tough enough, yes. what What do we make of that in terms of what we can expect from him now? Yeah, it seems, I think some cynics point to the fact that uh, she, she, she grappled with the issue of the sep- child separation policy at the time, um, but ultimately relented and, and endorsed that policy, uh, which was subsequently reversed, by the way, by Donald Trump and uh, then in June by the courts. 
Uh, but she did eventually back that uh, and she kind of excused it, saying it wasn't really separating children, etc. Uh, but it seems in, in recent weeks she has warned Donald Trump uh, about how far he can go legally. So uh, to be very cynical about this, you could say, you know, she was happy to, to separate children from the parents. But when it came to breaking the law, she was not going to go that far. And this was uh, in relation to Donald Trump's suggestion in recent weeks that he would close the border completely. Um, and allegedly Nielsen and other people in the Department of Homeland Security was, was cautioning the president against doing this, saying this was going to uh, result in a huge battle in the courts, which they would ultimately probably lose. And Donald Trump seems to be, be have been frustrated at her views on this, and this is one of the reasons why um, he moved to remove her. Also, she was due to be in Europe, I believe, last week at some um, security meetings. And instead, she was summoned to to kind of to uh, survey the border at, in some of the southern states. And she went there late last week. Uh, so there's, there's been a constant kind of tension. But it, it seems that Donald Trump easily, as we know before, it may have been quite like relatively impulsive to dismiss Nielsen. Uh, as you say, she was loyal to the president. Um, but she is now finding, I suppose, like a lot of people who've left the administration, that, you know, at what price was that loyalty? She is now returning to civilian life, if you like, will be like many people in uh, who have worked in the White House. Traditionally, one would go from a job to the White House and would have its pick. You would have your pick of jobs. What's been happening in the Trump administration, there's been huge turnover of staff. But a lot of people who've been living, leaving the administration have found that they found it more difficult uh, then to pick up uh, positions elsewhere. So it'll be interesting to see how her career uh, plays out now that she's um, on her way out of the White House. And now before we come to the, the subsequent departure from the White House, it's probably worth mentioning as well another decision he made, not a departure this time, but he, he suddenly withdrew his, his nomination to head the uh, ICE, Immigration and Custom Enforcement, Ron Vitello, and he said uh, he wanted to go in a tougher direction. Again, that was more evidence, wasn't it, really, that he's, he's very unhappy at the moment with how his officials have been carrying out immigration policy. Yeah, that was also a sign that uh, changes were to come. Last week, he abruptly withdrew the nomination of Ronald Vitiello, uh, who was to lead ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. Um, Vitiello had been moving through the Senate confirmation process. He was widely expected to become the new head of you know, the country's main immigration body. And all of a sudden, Trump pulled him. Um, he said, he was asked about this last Friday on his way to California. And Donald Trump said, look, we, he's a good man, but we're... We, we want to go in a tougher direction. Um, now, Vitiello reported to Kirsten Nielsen. So um, it's now seeming that there's a pattern that he, he, he is seeking to kind of purge, I suppose, um, a certain set of people within the Department of Homeland Security. Nielsen herself, just to, to cast back, John Kelly, the former chief of staff, before he was appointed by Donald Trump to become his chief of staff, he, of course, himself was the head of the Department of Homeland Security. When he moved to the White House, the Oval Office, then Nielsen went in his place. So she was a very close ally of John Kelly. Um, and since his departure, he himself left last December. Um, there is a sense that perhaps she, she lost uh, a strong ally within the Trump administration. But it does seem that Donald Trump is targeting um, officials who were close to Nielsen and Kelly within the Department of Homeland Security. And what about then this we've had on, sort of hot on the heels of her departure came yet another one, the head of the Secret Service, Randolph Tex Alley. What's the significance of his exit? And is there any connection between that and, and the others? Yeah, I think there is. Um, Alice was appointed by Donald Trump in 2017, I believe, to, to lead the Secret Service. And it was quite unusual because traditionally um, career civil Secret Service officials would 
be appointed to this position. In his case, he wasn't a career Secret Service official. He was a former um, Marine Corps general. And he also kind of knew and worked with John Kelly, who was also a former um, a retired general. So uh, again, he was kind of part of that group, if you like. He was an ally of, of Kelly. Um, of course, there was suspicion when his resignation was announced on Monday that this was connected in some way to the breach in security in Mar-a-Lago a couple of weeks ago where a Chinese national was arrested. Um, she had been found entering the property with cell phones and a thumb drive infected with malware and there's a huge security breach there. But it, it, it emerged that really it does not seem to be connected with that, that Alice actually got a signal from Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, that he should start rethinking his future about 10 days ago before this incident happened. Um, so again, it looks like Donald Trump is flexing his muscles. Um, he's trying to send a signal of bringing, you know, out with the old, in with the new. And there are reports at this stage that in the next few days, there could be further departures. The head of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services and one of his deputies um, and the general counsel in the Department of Homeland Security. So we're probably going to be seeing more departures from that uh, department, which is so crucial. The department is so crucial to Donald Trump's ideology and his policy because it's centrally involved with implementing his immigration policy. And as I say, I think it's a real signal that he is now going to refocus, recalibrate his, his efforts in this in this area. And I think the departure of these officials also suggests that Stephen Miller, his long-term advisor, uh, a young, young man in his 30s who ha takes a very hardline approach to immigration, he really appears to be on the ascendant now in the White House in terms of shaping immigration policy. Um, and he has been there with Donald Trump from the beginning during his campaign. And he was someone who really encouraged Donald Trump to pursue a hardline immigration policy during the election campaign. So it looks like, as I say, he's on the ascendant now and he seems to be shaping a lot of decision making when it comes to immigration. And Christian Nielsen is to be replaced, at least in an acting capacity, by Kevin McAleenan, the, the, the current Customs and Border Protection Commissioner. Um, do we know much about him and is there any significance in, in the selection of him as, as the replacement? No, he is um, someone who's, who's a, an official in that job. Um, he's a cabinet officer. Um, and he's been kind of in that area for a while. So in one sense, it, it's not, not not surprising. But what is uh, significant there is that he is now being appointed to that as another acting secretary. And technically, Donald Trump, uh, not to get too technical, but he, he he'd, um, announced the appointment of Kevin McAleenan in a temporary capacity. But in fact, technically, the current acting deputy secretary, Claire Grady, should automatically fill in for Kirsten Nielsen. And there are reports that Grady herself is refusing to go, that, that technically she would have to resign in order for Donald Trump to appoint McAleenan. So he could have an issue there. Secondly, there is now a trend within the White House of appointing for a considerable length of time acting secretary. So we now have an acting defence secretary since the departure of uh, Jim Mattis. Uh, Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, is technically acting chief of staff. Um, also in the Interior Secretary is acting uh, secretary. And I think there's real concern now growing about this trend. Uh, Donald Trump said uh, back in January, he told reporters that he likes, he, say, he said, I like the idea of somebody acting. It gives me flexibility. And the suspicion is that Donald Trump is evading the Senate confirmation process because for most of these top jobs like Secretary of, of, of Homeland Security or Defence, Interior, they need to be uh, approved by the Senate. Um, but by, you know, appointing somebody acting, that uh, allows him to evade that process for a time. Now, I think there is a time limit 
there could be 130 days or so by which, you know, a permanent replacement uh, needs to be in place and, and, and put forward for sound confirmation. But I think it is perhaps an example of Donald Trump rebelling against the system again, saying, look, these checks and balances, who needs them? I can put in my acting, whoever I want, for a temporary period, who will actually do my bidding and doesn't have to worry about a Senate confirmation. Um, so it would be interesting to watch if he comes under pressure, particularly from Democrats, on that issue in the next few weeks. OK. On a different subject, Suzanne, but another unexpected move on Monday from the White House was the decision to designate Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps a foreign terrorist organisation. What prompted that move? Yeah, um, there were reports that this could have been imminent um, a couple of months ago by the New York Times that uh, some figures in the administration was were considering uh, this designation. So, um, in a sense, it, it took people by surprise yesterday in terms of the timing, although, again cynics point to the fact that Donald Trump announced this on the eve of the Israeli elections. Obviously, Benjamin Netanyahu has taken a you know, very strong view on Iran. He was overjoyed at America's decision to pull out of the 2015 nuclear deal. And um, he was in Washington only two weeks ago. And he um, spoke at length and briefed on Iran, its, its role in the conflict of Syria, its threat to Israel, etc. And he's in a so, very, very tight election race where small margins could make a difference to him. Exactly. And, you know, interestingly, um, Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister, um, immediately put out a tweet saying that it, basically this had been a gift to Netanyahu. Um, and also Netanyahu himself took to Twitter to thank Donald Trump um, for for making this move. Um, he said, once again, you were keeping the world safe from Iran, Iranian aggression and terrorism. So uh, that, that that's one reason, uh, for perhaps for this decision. Um, but the decision is pretty provocative. Uh, it would mark the first time a US government has designated a an arm of a of a of a government, if you like, um, as an official terrorist threat. Uh, and a lot of experts have pointed to the fact that this could have unintended consequences. This could be very destabilizing. There's all, it's also very unclear. Officials were briefing at the White House yesterday, and it, but it was very unclear about what this, how this is going to work in practice. This designation means that there will be more sanctions. Individuals, entities connected um, to the Revolutionary Guards will, will be affected by sanctions. They are due to come into force next Monday, but it's very unclear who will be affected by this, how they will be implemented, uh, etc. Um but I think, you know, it's also uh, a mark of, I think, the power of hawks within the administration, like uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State. He ultimately had to take the final decision on this. And also John Bolton, uh, the National Security Advisor. He has very well-known views in Iran. He believes, he said before, for example, he, he supports the idea of re a re regime change in Tehran. So perhaps... It's a signal of their power, again, that they're on the ascendancy when it comes to these issues in the Middle East within in the White House. There were reports that other official, military and intelligence officials like Joseph Dunmore, the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, was much more cautious about moving forward with this designation. Um, but no, uh, they did so. It's again an example of turning the screws on Iran. And again, I think it puts pressure on US-EU relations. The EU, of course, has remained a signatory um, or its, its members have remained signatory to the Iran deal. And it's in the process of setting up a special purpose vehicle uh, that will allow trade to continue between Iran and other uh, international trading partners. And so, again, it's unclear how this designation and the sanctions that will accompany it 
will have, uh, what effect that will have on the EU's efforts to set up the special mechanism to allow trade to keep happening with Iran. And so it complicates things even further there in the region. Of course, uh, Donald Trump is meeting um, the Egyptian leader as well this week uh, in the the White House. So it'll be interesting to see if, if, you know, we get any more insight into his his, his Middle East policy in that region uh, this week. Okay. Well, Suzanne, I've used the word unexpected there several times. So insofar as it's possible to predict anything about this administration, what do you think we should be watching out for over the coming days? Did you suggest there may be further, further White House resignations? Yeah, I think so. I think um, what we look for is is Donald Trump's emphasis now on immigration and the border wall. There are reports that he could even revive the the separation of children from the parents uh, policy that received such a public backlash last summer. There are reports that he was trying to revive that in some form, that he would give um, arriving migrants the option of being separated um, and allowing their children to go free, if you like, or keeping families together in custody. So that's something to watch. Um, that would almost also, certainly be challenged in courts, wouldn't it? Yes, exactly. Um, but there is a real sense that, and, and immigration numbers are very high. I don't have the figures in front of me, but in March, there were well over 100,000 uh, migrants who arrived to the border. I think I'm right. Um, so this is playing very well with his base. Uh, we do have to remember Fox News, a lot of Republicans in Congress are behind the president on this. They support his idea that there's a crisis at the border. Um, so he is obviously feels that this is something he needs to return to to keep his base engaged. So it is by no means impossible that he announces something more radical on in terms of immigration in the next few days and weeks. He's going to Texas as well this week, down to Houston and San Antonio near the border. So perhaps we could see something there. Uh, we most definitely will see a toughening of rhetoric, I'd say, by the president and return to talk about the border wall, etc. So I think that's where he's going in terms of his thinking at the moment. And that's what uh, we may see some more action from the White House in the coming days and weeks. OK, that's great, Suzanne. Thanks for that. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.